0: the Gospel of John. Let me encourage you, if you haven't ever read through the Gospel of John or it's been a while since you've read through it, I really think it's something once a week, once a month, try to get to John. I've titled a series that I've been preaching now for a year. This is sermon number 29, and we're in the middle of chapter 6. So we're just making real good headway, aren't we? Uh, Verses 22 to 29 The title of my series, because I really think the Gospel of John really is a series of conversations with Christ, and this is no different, because today we're going to look at a crowd conversing with Christ. The subject matter of these verses, verses 22 to 29, though, can be summed up in this, when you're searching for Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Now let me confess, let me ask you this, have you ever done the right thing for the wrong reasons? (laughs) Come on now be honest. Have you ever done the right thing for the wrong reasons? Now, I'm going to confess to you a little bit. It's funny because I have some people here that have known me since I was just a wee little boy, and so some of them might even remember a time like this because this wasn't unique. I had many opportunities to have this particular incident I'm going to tell you about lived out. You see, I grew up in a time when parents spanked their kids, all right? I'm just putting it out there. I had old-fashioned Newfoundland parents, and they believed that The wooden spoon was not for mixing chili. It was for the child's rare end, okay? And I was spanked. And by by God's grace, I survived, all right? Now, I remember a time when I was in church when I was a little fella, and I was really out of line. I was making a lot of noise. We had wooden pews, and I was clinking around, and I was embarrassing my father. And my father leaned over and whispered in my ear these infamous words, son, when we get home, you and I are going to have a little chat in the bedroom. Now, that was code for, you're getting spanked when we get home. And I knew it. And you know what? Once I heard those words, the service couldn't be long enough. I instantly became a fan of the preacher preaching for an hour. I wanted him to preach. I wanted him to go on and on and on. I was on my very best behavior the rest of the morning. I hoped and even tried to manipulate my parents to have chats. I made sure I got them to run into people that would make them talk to people. And I thought, maybe if Dad talks to enough people, he'll forget what he said. But on the drive home, I heard Mom and Dad talking, and Mom wanted to go do something. And Dad said, well, we got to deal with Stephen first. I, "Ah, oh, stinky, remembered." So then I hatched a beautiful plan. So when Dad called me into his bedroom and reminded me what I had done wrong, I immediately oh, I went into immediate penitence. I confessed and repented and admitted my wrongdoing. It was my best performance. T- tears welled up in my eyes, and my Academy award-winning acting, I was sure would get me off the hook. I said everything right. I owned my sin. I admitted I was guilty. I told dad I loved him with the best puppy dog eyes I had. I apologized for embarrassing him and promised never to do it again. And so you can imagine my horror when dad said thanks, hugged me and told me I was still getting spanked. I immediately cried out, no fair, and I took it all back. That wasn't how it was supposed to go. Huh. How about you, before you think I'm just the only punk in the room? Have you ever been honest with the police officer, hoping you'll get out of a ticket? Told the cashier about her mistake in hopes that she'll give it to you for free? I had this happen at Bed Bath & Beyond the other day. I wanted to get a a cast iron skillet to do some blackened salmon, and I bought this kind of look like chainmail thing that you're supposed to scrub this thing with, and it was more expensive than the skillet. So when I got to the checkout, the wee girl just put it into the bag, and for a minute I stood there and I went... I got a free wash pad and then my conscience took over and I was like honey I just need you to know right you stuck that in there and that doesn't come with it I'm supposed to pay for that and I thought for a sec you know my good honesty will get me room and she's like oh thank you for that and quickly rang it in 24 bucks later I still had to pay it how about this have you been nice to your spouse for what it will get for you valentine day was just this past week so how about it were you only nice because nice things might happen Have you sucked up to your boss simply for the promotion? Worked hard because you knew someone was watching? Tried to impress your teacher for the good grade? Yet by the looks on everyone's faces here as you kind of nervously grin back at me, I think we're all guilty of doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Thank you, Mary. It's good to have you back. You see, I wasn't sorry for what I had done to my dad at all. I was sorry... If it meant my life, or rather at that point, my bum would hurt. So enter John chapter 6, 22 to 29. And you're going to see exactly what I've been trying to show us. You see, John, the gospel writer, picks seven signs. He picks out seven signs for us to see. And all too often, we get up in the hype and the power of the miracles. And remember once again why John is writing this account to Jesus. He is the writer that writes his entire book and doesn't give you the reason till the end. Remember in John chapter 20, verse 31, now Jesus did many other signs. So John says, I've shown you seven. Jesus did way more than that in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And John has already shown us the power of Jesus in all kinds of ways. Back in John chapter 2, he showed us Jesus has quality over life at the wedding of Cana. And time and space in the healing of the official son who wasn't even present at the time. Jesus displayed his true healing power with the man paralyzed for 38 years over religious superstition in John 4. And in John chapter 5 into 6, he did something utterly amazing. He fed 10 to 15,000 with nothing but some barley loaves and pickled fish. Created out of nothing and then satisfying to the full what would normally have been a slave's meal. Then to top it all off, Jesus displays his lordship over nature and the elements. There we go. I was, was going to say, that's Jesus talking. No, it's not. It's just the microphone was turned up. When he walked on water in calmed storms and proved that in the midst of upheaval, we're never out of his sight. Yet, if you read the first six chapters of John, over and over, you're going to realize that everybody missed it. Nathaniel missed it in John chapter 1. When he said, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" The master at the wedding missed it. remember when Jesus turns water into wine, and he goes and says, "You know, most people see, uh, serve the good wine first. You waited till last. Why did you do that?" And they got into an argument over the quality of wine instead of, "Somebody just turned water into wine." Nicodemus missed it. When Jesus said, "You must be born again," he got into a semantic argument on how someone can actually be born again. Rather than understand what Jesus was saying to him, the Samaritan woman missed it at the well, as did the Samaritan town and the disciples. Heck, even John the Baptist struggled with it. Remember when Jesus came to be baptized and John said, No, no, I'm not going to baptize you, you baptize me. He missed it. And boy, did the religious crowd fight it at the temple. Remember when Jesus went in and cleansed it and when he healed on the Sabbath? And once again in our passage, the crowd for the second time wanted to make Jesus king and they would still get it wrong. You see, they were actually searching for Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Now, don't forget this, okay? Because at the end of John chapter 2, you'll read these words. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew what was in him. Those words should scare you a little bit. Because we can fool some of the people some of the time. But you'll never fool all of the people all of the time. Especially your mom. But Jesus knows exactly what you're thinking right now. But at the and here in chapter 6 remember this when the people after the feeding of the 5000 saw the sign that he had done they said this is indeed the prophet who has come to the world and perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king Jesus withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself So in between this and where we are now we've looked at a couple of where we looked at a couple of weeks ago we see how true disciples responded to Jesus Remember, in the walking on the water, the disciples obeyed Jesus. They got in the boat, and Jesus found them and saw them, came to them, put them in that position, called them to trust him to do what he says, and they did. In the face of loss of life, they obeyed. But contrast that response to what I'm about to read to you now in John chapter 6, verses 22 to 29. Notice what John the apostle writes. He says, on the next day. So the walking on waters happened. Jesus has withdrawn. He went up into a mountain. The disciples have struggled and rowed for up to eight or nine hours in a boat to get to about three and a half miles. They thought they were going to die. Jesus walks on water. All that happens. The next day, they're in Capernaum. So this is where this verse takes it up. The crowd that remained on the other side of the Sea of Galilee saw that there had been only one boat. They knew that only one boat left that night. And it only had the disciples in it. Jesus was not in that boat. That's what our verse says. And Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to the Capernaum seeking Jesus. I'll give you I want you to hang on to that all right for just a few minutes. So verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, "Rabbi, where did you come from or when did you get here?" And Jesus answered them, notice his answer, he actually completely ignores the question. Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Notice how they respond in verse 28. Then they said to Him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Give us the list. And Jesus answered them in verse 29. This is the work, singular, the work of God, that you believe in Him whom he has sent. If you write in your bible, circle that word or underline believe in him. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Very quickly for a few minutes, I just have three little points on this one's a little passage. Number 1, I want you to realize this, the delusion that searching means you're committed. The delusion that searching means you're committed. Okay, in verse 22, where we pick it up is where we left in verse 15, if you're following this, all right? The crowd is mystified. The crowd's amazed. They want Jesus to be king, and by the jumps, he's going to be king, even if they got to make him king, all right? But already we know the rest of the story. Jesus has gone up into the mountain to pray. He sent his disciples into the storm of their lives at this point. Then he came walking on the water. He calms their fears, gave them a massive object lesson on faith. Now they're all safely over to Capernaum, and so enter verse 22, the crowd is up, it's the next day, expecting to see Jesus, maybe even have, their, have his coronation. They were, were going to make him king, but oh, oh, wait a second, no, Jesus, where is he? And I love this because John does a great job of giving us the plot. You see, the crowd already knows there's only one boat. Jesus didn't get into it. They know the disciples did. They fully expect to find him, but no, Jesus. And they too know where Jesus has set up shop. They know that Capernaum has now become his base of operation. And so other boats come and they get in and off they go. Now, don't let that little tidbit just float by you. Because remember how many people, we know there was 5,000 men. And we know there could have been somewhere between ten and 20,000 humans. If even half of them go, that's a lot of boats. Like that's not just a couple of dories went across the pond. That's like a whole flagship, right? I mean, this would have been a movement that everybody around the Sea of Galilee would have taken notice. A ton of boats with potentially thousands of people decide we're booking it to Capernaum because we know he must be there. He's not here. The disciples aren't here. We know where they went. Let's get there. And so they get there. Now, I I, I don't know about you, but in regards to trying to catch this, I flew home last week. My flights, because of freezing rain in Toronto, my flight from Myrtle Beach to Charlotte, North Carolina, and Charlotte to Toronto were canceled. And then they rebooked me for Wednesday. So I was not going to stay in Charlotte or Myrtle Beach for four days or three days. I wanted to get home. So the airport let me rent a car, and we drove from Myrtle Beach up to Charlotte, and I caught the last plane leaving Charlotte to go to Montreal. And so I landed in Montreal, had to stay in a hotel overnight, And then Kathy, who works for Air Canada, was so gracious, takes care of me. And uh, she called me that morning and she said, look, there's been a lot of cancellations. There's one flight going out at 940. Get your carcass to the airport. It's full right now, but I really think you'll get on standby. All right? I'm going to trust Kathy. So off I go. All right? Get to the airport. She tells me to go to the ticketing counter. There's one Air Canada employee working at the ticketing counter and about 15 people in line, and everybody's got a story. So I stood there for about 30 minutes realizing I am never getting to that airport employee until that plane is in the air. So I text Kathy. So Kathy says, all right, I've moved you to standby. Get through security. Just get up to the ticket counter. Plead your case at the ticket counter at the gate. Right. There you go. I turn around. To get into the security line, I kid you not, there was about 10,000 people in the line for security. It is the longest line I have ever been in in my life. If you've been in the Montreal Pierre Elliott Trudeau Airport, the security line went from one end of the airport to the other three times. Everybody was angry. (laughs) It was just a volatile place to be. Now, there was a wee little French girl in front of me, and she was a cute little thing. And she looked at me at one point and said, Do you think this is? And I'm not going to do accents because I don't do them well. Every accent I do sounds Irish. But she was French, all right? So she looks at me and says, Is this the line for domestic flights? And I said, Tragically, yes. And we did not know. Even the signs that say 20 minutes to get through, the sign itself said three hours to get through security. I was doomed. I really didn't. I almost called Kathy and said, why am I standing in this line? Wouldn't you know it, right? This one Air Canada dude is walking up there, and I really think he thought that wee girl was pretty, and he was going to be a stud. So he walked up to her and said, when's your flight? And she's like, it leaves in less than an hour. And he's like, well, come with me. And I think for sure he was going to ask her for for her name and number. And wouldn't you know it, in the midst of my grace, she goes, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. He's with me. (laughs) You had to see the disappointment on Buddy's face. And he's like, well, when does your flight leave? And I was like, in less than an hour. Well, come with me. Right? And they whisked me right through the Nexus line. And I'm going to tell you, I think I could have brought a Sherman tank through security. They were rolling them through. And I was through security in about 10 minutes. Got up to the gate. And the rest of the story is I was home Monday afternoon. But I remember what it was like to be a part of a crowd to be a part of this crowd, and so thousands maybe of boats carrying hundreds of people come over, and they crowd into Capernaum, and they all go there, and if you actually look down to verse 29, Jesus is in the synagogue teaching, so literally thousands of people show up at Capernaum, crowd their way into the synagogue, a place that I've been to, by the way, in Israel and they disrupt it. They move in, creating a commotion, kind of like this place. Can you imagine? There's no way to get in and out of here without everybody knowing you're moving around. Okay, and so they do this, and they kind of take charge of the place, and they look at Jesus, and they want to know, how did you get here? They don't even say why. They go, how? And imagine, imagine if Jesus had told them. Well, you know, I saw the guys, and they were struggling, so I just walked on water, and I calmed the storm, and then I went over to Capernaum. Do you really think they would have all believed that? But you'll notice Jesus ignores them altogether. He completely ignores that, and he says, you're only here looking for me because you're looking for another Happy Meal. You're not interested in me. You're interested in what I can do for you. In other words, they were doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. You see, they were desperate. They appeared to be committed. They're convinced that they are truly committed to Jesus. And as we'll see in just a minute, Jesus is not only not only not impressed, in fact, he'll flat out call them on their delusion. Frederick Goddard, the old commentator, put it this way, instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they had seen in the sign only the bread. You see, the crowd was thinking materialistically. And we all do it. Don't get judged in the crowd because you and I are the crowd. We all know we've got needs to meet, right? If I asked you all, stick your hands up if you've got needs. There's not one of you. That's it. some Dave's put it in as he went to the bathroom. Everybody's got a need. All of us do. Right now, he's got a need. All right? <laughs> we all know we've got needs. I mean, after all, we've made up sayings, don't we? Don't we say things like death and taxes? Don't we say that another day, another dollar? Don't we say got to eat, right? Or the early bird gets the worm? Don't we have, haven't you said this, parents to your kids? Money doesn't grow on trees. The problem is we get so focused on the temporary real needs of today that we forget or lose sight of the eternal needs, what's really important. And this is what Jesus is going to call them out on. In fact, a quick glance through the Bible, and we'll show you this over and over again. It's, the issue is not that the struggle is real or that you don't have needs, but rather that the needs of the day take over and push aside the spiritual priorities of the eternal. And you get this. Remember Paul, Brother Paul is preaching through the book of Joshua. Remember Achan? When they go and they, they try to overtake AI and he takes money and he hides it in his tent. What did he do? He thought materialistically. He didn't see the grand scheme of God. He he only thought about himself. What about uh, uh, Samson? Samson saw the world purely materialistically. I want instant pleasure now. Solomon would have been a great fan of drive-through. Okay? What about Solomon? The wisest man that ever lived, and yet women and pleasure and fame and fortune overruled all that wisdom, and he pursued the flesh more than he did God. What about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? They wanted the glory and none of the sacrifice. They sold land. They wanted to pawn themselves off as great givers, and yet were secretly holding a lot back. And what about Demas, right? In 2 Timothy when Paul says, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. You see, you're deluded if you think That searching means you're committed. Point two is the delusion that effort means favor. The delusion that effort means favor. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 26 and 27. In 26, Jesus answered them, completely ignoring the how did you get here. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then he follows that up. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which, by the way, the Son of Man will give to you. Why? For on Him God the Father has set His seal. You see, the crowd doesn't hear a call of repentance. They don't hear an invitation to admit their inability, but rather think, okay, tell us what we've got to do so that you'll do what we want you to do. The idea that they're sinners who deserve hell and punishment and justice according to God's holy standard never enters their mind. The only thing that they're thinking about is, I'm a victim. I've been enslaved by Rome. You don't know how abused I've been. You don't understand, Jesus, how wronged we've been. We're hungry. We're needy. You seem to have power and abilities. We'll even give you respect, praise, and adoration. But, dude, meet our needs as we see them, as we define them, and we want them met. In the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, who could put things much blunter and more bravely than I am, said this, Tens of thousands would like to escape from hell, but they have no wish to escape from sin. Are there not multitudes who are very anxious to get rid of the punishment, but not at all concerned to be delivered from the habit of iniquity? Here's the problem. You see, in my lifetime at 46, I've had countless opportunities to speak with people who are dissatisfied about the direction of their lives. Many people are. When I speak with these types of people and we discuss his or her job, because it, it almost always comes up in the conversation, usually ends up with, what do you do for a living? And you might be precise that maybe not, and many times the person say, well, no, I'm just trying to put food on the table. I don't really like my job, but it puts food on the table. Have you ever thought about how empty life can seem when our labor is done simply so that we can put food on the table? Have you not met the person that loves their job out of the love of the job versus the person who has a job because they got to pay the bills and put food on the table? It's a very different conversation. Now, don't get me wrong. Labor is done, is not done simply so that we can, uh, uh, sorry, how empty life can seem, but Sometimes it is necessary to do things we don't like because we have a responsibility to feed our families. And if we can't get work anywhere else, we need to take on work, and that may not be part of our vocations to make sure we get food on the table. And it's frustrating because food perishes. Stop and think with me for a minute. Debbie and I are going to go home, and we're going to have lunch. We're going to set the table. We're going to eat. And then the next day, we've got to do it all over again. Set the table, eat, clean up, and do it all over again, and do it all over again. And Jesus is saying, don't spend your life pursuing that sort of thing. Don't spend your life pursuing that which has no ultimate significance. I think about this every day. I'm being honest here, I've seen my friends who aren't Christians get up in the morning, get dressed, go to work, and go through the anguish and the struggles that life brings day after day after day. And so many of them have said to me, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And it usually happens that those types of people wake up one day when they're 60 or 70 years old and go, why did I do all this? Is this all there is? Is this really as good as it gets? And hence, you see all around you two responses to this crushing reality, the deluded pursuit of happiness in any of its forms. So to escape the idea that I'm just going to do this for 70 or 80 or 90 years, and this is all there is, so you know what? Then I'm going to drink it up. I'm going to toke it up. I'm going to smoke it up. I'm going to spend it up. I'm going to do something to not deal with that crushing reality. Or the other form is a depressed resignation. Well, this is all there is. And you know this because you've met people like this denial or searching for someone or something. And this is where Jesus comes in. He says, Seek that which is eternal, invest in that which doesn't perish, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where there is no moth and rust and thieves don't come in and steal. And yet, Jesus says in verse 27, Do not work. Now, you got to make sure you get what he's not saying. Jesus isn't telling us to be lazy. He isn't telling us not to be holy. After all, Adam for, Adam was formed and he was called to work. He was supposed to work the land. Paul told Timothy that a man who doesn't work is worse than an unbeliever. Christians are called to show themselves like Christ in Matthew 25 by working. Paul told the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Look at how they are to work in verse 28. Because he says, you are to work for that which endures. But in verse 28, notice their response. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, at first glance, you might think, see, boy, you're being awfully hard on this crowd, man. That's reasonable. I mean, he said, do the work of God. And so they say, well, what works are we supposed to do? But see, we're back to the Old Testament again. You see, the books of the law were not meant to give the nation a list of what they could ever hope to obey. Rather, it was to remind them every day of their need of a Savior. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all those lists was never supposed to be where they would say, Yes, nailed it! It was supposed to make them get up every day and go, I cannot possibly pull this off. I need mercy and grace. But they were so arrogant to believe that they had done it. And you, you see, they, they really felt that they could do this And notice something else, right? When they say to Jesus, all right, tell us what works we're supposed to do and we'll do it. You see, if they can pull this off, you know what they're really saying? If we do this, then we put God in our debt. If you give me a list and I accomplish the list, now you owe me. J.M. Boyce puts it like this. The human mind is always flattered when it's conscious of doing something for God. What is more, for his doings, man considers himself entitled to a reward. How pleased we should all be if we could only earn salvation. In that case, we would have succeeded in bringing God into the humbling position of being in debt to us, and we would love it. But this is not the way of salvation. This is why Jesus says what he does. They're thinking of laboring for the body, the present, that they are okay and only need to clean themselves up a little bit or add a little bit of Jesus. But Jesus is saying, no, admit that you're helpless, in need of saving, not from Rome, but to God. In fact, Jesus, when he calls the crowd crowd to labor, he adds that this labor comes with the added blessing of being given to us by Jesus. He says, labor for what is eternal. And by the way, I'm the one that's going to give it to you. (laughs) But let me ask you what one pastor asked his congregation. Have you ever asked yourself what you were doing with your life? Do you ever wonder why you live the way you are living? Do you think about what you're trying to accomplish? Do you know what you have to gain? Have you not heard that he who gains the whole world and loses his own soul has no profit? In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the son of man will give you. Why? Because God the father has set a seal on him. So church, listen. Where do you go for and what are we to do about this? Can it be so simple as what's Jesus talking about? What do you do? How do you do? Is it, is it so simple as ready for this? Here's, this is profound. Like you need to write this down. This is going to blow your minds. Here's what Jesus means. Ready? Read your Bible. Ta-da. Are you impressed? I love having you here. Guys, you got to read your Bible, pray every day because you grow, grow, grow. There is no shortcut to knowing Jesus. You see, you read your Bible, you do the work of being God's people in corporate worship. These are the activities, the labor, where Jesus will give us what we truly need. It's funny things, you know what? Every time I go to the Bible, if I consistently go to my Bible and I consistently pray, guess what? God shows me what to do. Every time. But when I try to live my life, purely on the memories of some Bible I read, I can guarantee you this. I screw it up every time. But when I go to his word and I read and he gives me things, he sh- talks to me. And even though, yes, if you thinks you're mentally ill, if God, you think Jesus talks to you, he does. And I gladly and proudly say I am in the class of the mentally ill because I believe that I read God's word and God talks to me. I do. You see, you need to hear from God, to know our true selves, to see the world correctly, to understand your sinfulness and God's love, to find grace, to experience mercy, to embrace humility, to trust God at his word is only going to come if you read his word over and over again. There's no shortcut. And so notice finally, the call to rest in the Savior. You see, if you're deluded, if you think that's just because you're searching for Jesus, it means you're committed to him. You're deluded if you think you can work your way into his favor. Jesus says, rest in me. Look at verse 29. And he answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus basically says, trust me. Not the food you ate. Trust me. He offers himself. What a promise that Christ holds out. He tells us that he himself will give eternal food to all who seek it. Jesus will, not, will cause us not to work out our way to perfection, but to come in him in a relationship with perfection, who will give us his perfection. He will cover us and wash us in his blood, who will make us new and hide us under the shadow of his wing, who will be the rock of ages. All the things that David sings about in Psalm 18. Listen to what David says. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. I I ask you this, church, where are the people that no matter what you face have that kind of confidence in Christ? Again, let me quote Charles Spurgeon. Whenever a sinner comes to him, Jesus, he becomes his savior. Whenever he meets a sick soul, he acts as his physician. If you go to him, you will find him at home and on the lookout for you. He will be more glad to receive you than you will be to be received. I tell you again that he cannot reject you. That would be to alter his whole character and unchrist himself. To spurn a coming sinner would un-Jesus him and make him to be somebody else and not himself any longer. He cannot deny himself. Go and try him. Go and try him. Have you met Jesus?
1: I mean, met him?
0: Let me put it another way. Do you realize that your greatest need is not to be successful? As singles, as married, as parents. It's not to be rich or to secure or be secure in worldly things. Now, I get it. Everybody in here, including me, wants to be happy. But the true Christian knows that true happiness comes only through fellowship with God. Remember, Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The king's doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, writes it like this, the great tragedy of the world is that though it gives itself to seek for happiness, it never seems to be able to find it. We are not to hunger and thirst after blessedness, We are not to hunger and thirst after happiness, but that is what most people are doing. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire, and thus we always miss it. It always eludes us. According to the Scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else, Christ. The happiness that you look for is found in thirsting for righteousness, so what does this passage mean? give you two quick things and then I'm done. Number one, John 6, to 29 means this, that the heart of man, not the number of them, is what matters most to Jesus. Let me say that again. The heart of man and not the number of them is what matters most to Jesus. Do I want this church to grow numerically? Sure. Would I like to see revival in St. John's? Absolutely. But I want it to be real. I don't want to see us gather crowds through gimmicks and games. Because what you win them with is what you win them to. That's why when the crowd showed up, think about Jesus' ego here. The crowd shows up and says, feed us, we'll follow you. Jesus will later on, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to show you, Jesus says, no, no, feed on me and I'll save you. And guess what? The crowd, they don't like that. They don't like that. Secondly, the work we're called to do is not about physical ease, but about an eternal relationship. Friends, don't come to Jesus because life will get easier. Because it won't. Come to Jesus because you get Jesus for eternity. So let me end by this, asking you these questions. What are you truly looking for from Jesus? What are you really looking for from Jesus? Now, be honest with yourself. Don't be honest with me. This is not a game. Don't look around. What are you looking for from Jesus? Like, be, take a moment and truly be honest. What is it? When you go to Jesus, what is it you want? Let me read a statement to, to you. Let, let me see if you can put this in a date. Somebody just wrote, man is now thinking out a Bible for himself framing a religion in harmony with the development of liberal thought, constructing a worship on the principles of taste and culture, shaping a God to suit the expanding aspirations of the age, the extent of the mischief no one can calculate. A soul without faith, a church without faith, a nation without faith, a world without faith. What would be their future? What is their present? When faith goes, all good things go. When unbelief comes in, all evil things follow. What would you believe if I told you that Horatio Bonar wrote that in 1883? That sounds like it could have been written yesterday. See, what are you truly looking for from Jesus? For him to meet your felt needs or for him to tell you what your real need is? If you want Jesus for material ease, if you're adding Jesus as your relationship guru, if you're hoping Jesus will give you a leg up for school or a job or promotion, you'll be sorely disappointed and I promise you, you'll either turn away in jaded unbelief or you'll deli- die in deluded tragedy like that of Matthew 7. Where people will say, Lord, Lord, we did wonderful and marvelous things in your name. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you'll come to Jesus in a Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 way, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and notice, and learn of me. We very rarely finish that sentence, because we love the heavy laden and burdened part. But he says, learn of me. Learn to be like me. You'll find rest and satisfaction. Your thirst will be quenched, your soul fed. Your mind will be put at ease. Peace will guide you and sustain you. But let me ask you this question. What are you looking for from the church? A religion? A list? A place to feel good about yourself? Man, the one thing I learned when I was driving through North Carolina and South Carolina cliches abound. I saw church signs, it was fascinating. Come to this church where everybody's special, come to this church where nobody's a nobody and everybody's a somebody sounds like marketing 101. That's like a slogan to get you into the Avalon Mall, doesn't it? You see, the the true slogan of the church is, come to Jesus. We're all messed up. Come to Jesus. We're imperfect trying to follow the one who is. Don't go to church because of what you can get out of it. Come to church because it's where Christ will tell you what you need. And then finally, why do you call yourself a Christian? And I think that's a really good question. It's one that makes me a little nervous. What is the reason you are saying you're a Christian? And would anyone else call you one? You see, our motto for this year is to be Christ-like. Are you becoming like Christ? You see, don't settle for bread when Jesus offers you salvation. Jesus offered himself to you. As one old hymn says, Not from my righteousness, for I have none. But for His mercy's sake, Jesus, God's Son, suffered on Calvary's tree. Crucified with thieves was He. Great was His grace to me, His wayward one. Jesus gives us His word to read, to hear, and to trust and obey, and worship God, not for the fringe benefits, but for the ultimate relationship. Truly today, church, let Jesus be the the Messiah of your heart and soul, not simply your Costco or Walmart. Is he truly your Messiah? I'm going to ask our music team. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Lord, I pray that you will encourage us not to be deluded in thinking simply because we've shown up to church that that means we're Christians. Any more than me standing in a garage makes me a car. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't be deluded, that I can somehow work my way to get to the gospel. I can earn favor with you as if now you owe me something. Lord, what could you ever owe me? Oh, Lord, help me and my friends here to see the call to a Savior. That you're more interested in our heart than the numbers of us. Father, you're more interested in us pursuing our relationship with you. Oh, God, where I have failed, please overcome my failure so that my brothers and sisters here, my friends, my family members here will see truly Jesus Christ. Lord, if anyone's here and they're afraid, they're hiding, they're pretending, Lord, give them the courage to believe that you love them because you know them. To be loved is to be known, and to be known is to be loved. And Lord, as we sing this closing song, may it truly charge us up to go out and be different today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people say it, amen. As we finish up this morning, let's stand together and sing Jesus Messiah.
1: some friends. Miss her! Messiah, of and as you leave
0: here to bear witness to christ and faithfulness to the scriptures in harmony with the church of the ages and in unity with all christ people may our lord jesus christ the one who came with grace and truth also fill your hearts with grace and truth, as you serve him in the days ahead. And may the joy of the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be your strength. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you, everyone. You are dismissed.